Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Today we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Devorah Weinberg. She is a specialist surgeon, general surgeon, working at Chris Arnie Barrett Hospital and Netcare Linksfield Hospital. Very lucky that we managed to track her down today and have her in studio. Welcome, Devorah. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Dean. It's good to be here. So, you don't see very many women general surgeons, or is that a thing of the past? So, I think in... You know, traditionally, surgery's um, always been a male-dominated profession. I think we are seeing a shift in that. Specifically at WITS, where I trained, um, there was a big push to encourage females uh, to specialize in surgery, and they uh, developed what we called a mommy program, so that women who were specializing in surgery could take time off to have children and to do the things that they needed and still be able to specialize. So we are seeing a lot more female surgeons coming through the system. And uh, within the different uh, different uh, subspecialties of uh, surgery? So I think there's there's a broad spectrum, and and I, I'm not sure that there's specific because things that we see females in. Well, maybe I should, should reword it. It's very difficult to be a general surgeon. From a time point of view, from a how, from how demanding it is, which we can go into now. So, um, is there anyone, are any of the surgical subspecialties softer or have a better, you know, um, time? So they always tell me that uh, general surgery is not for nice Jewish girls. Um, to some degree, I have to uh, admit that it is a challenge. There are better options within the surgical field. Um, for example, ENT, urology, um, those are often less um, emergency related. You can have a better lifestyle. Um, and even within general surgery, there are things that are better if you subspecialize in, such as breast surgery, endocrine surgery. Um, and, and it's about trying to find a balance that works for you. Sure. Okay. Let's speak about um, how you got into surgery. I know we did a, a year of surgical training together before I did ENT, and uh, that's uh, one of the times where I confirmed that I didn't want to do general surgery based on the anatomy and, more importantly, based on the lifestyle and and the hours. So why did you choose general surgery, first of all? Well, clearly I'm a bit of a sucker for punishment. Um so I never thought I would do surgery. Um, I always thought I'd do pediatrics. And then in six-year medicine, I did my surgery rotation, and I really loved it. And this was confirmed during my internship in surgery. It was my favorite part of internship. And I realized that I did, in fact, want to be a surgeon. Um, I looked at different options within the surgery field. And for some reason, general surgery appealed to me. I enjoyed the spectrum of pathologies. I enjoy managing sick patients, um, the critical care element of as well. And I get bored really easily. So I like the fact that I could do a lot of different things. Um, so no, it's not a great option from a time and lifestyle point of view, but it does keep me challenged and entertained. Okay, very good. I mean, yeah, to be post-call and stay the whole next day operating 
after you've been up the entire night, something that doesn't appeal to many people. But now you're busy super specializing in trauma. Why trauma? So I think that just because we've chosen to do surgery doesn't mean we don't want to have anything else to do with our lives. Unfortunately, the way the the surgical setup is, it does mean that um, you do end up working long hours and maybe that's something that will change a little bit in the future although I'm not sure at the moment Um, trauma is something that I've always loved Um, I've always had a passion for trauma when I was 12 years old I wrote in my school book that I wanted to be a paramedic when I was big and I started working on the road as a medic when I was 17 and I've always spent time working in trauma um, to some degree or another, I still volunteer with uh, Ezra Medical Services, and I've always loved the trauma element of it. It's a combination of really interesting pathology, it's um, lots of critical care involvement, as well as really challenging and interesting surgeries. And South Africa has, um, it's the one thing we export to the world is a lot of trauma. So it's a really great place to specialize in trauma. Okay, so moving back now to general surgery or private practice at Necker Linfield Hospital. You're doing general surgery, mainly breast and uh, thyroid. Let's talk about what, are, what do general surgeons do in, in private? What pathologies would you see? So general surgeons do quite a broad spectrum of um, work. We see lots of different pathologies, and you do find either someone who subspecialized or someone who's a general surgeon but may have a specific interest in, in certain things where they do more of that. Um, I've spent um, quite a while working um, in a breast unit. There is no formal breast um, surgery specialization in this country, but um, it's essentially equivalent to a subspecialty in breast surgery. Um, and I also spend time working doing uh, head and neck, mostly thyroid and parathyroid surgery. So those are the two interests that I have. I also do um, GIT surgery, so stomach, um, colon, cancers, um, uh, scopes, so gastroscope, colonoscopes, um, depending on what the pathologies are. Um, and and there is a broad spectrum. I don't do hepatobiliary surgery. It's not something that I uh, spend time with. Um, but otherwise, um, tumors, soft tissue tumors, skin cancers, it's quite a broad spectrum hernias. of work. I beg your pardon? Do you do hernias? Do you enjoy yes, hernias? Yes, it's actually one of the things I'm particularly interested in, especially abdominal wall hernias. Um, and that's something that I spend quite a bit of time in. Okay, do you want to tell us about uh, hernias? You know, you always get people worried when they lift heavy things or go to gym that they get a hernia. Where where do people get, what is a hernia and where do people get um, hernias? So a hernia is essentially a defect in the abdominal wall. So our abdominal contents are kept in the cavity of the abdomen by a whole lot of layers of muscles that make up the abdominal wall. And Based on the nature of the abdominal cavity, it's under pressure all the time. And in order to ensure that it stays inside, we have quite strong muscles keeping everything in. Now, a hernia can be something that you're born with. It could be congenital or it could be something that you develop. So if you're born with a hernia, it means that you have a defect in your abdominal wall somewhere. Either it usually occurs in the midline, in the middle of your abdomen, 
or in your groin, and that's much more common in males um, because of the anatomy where the um, spermatic cord and all that goes down into the groin, there's a natural uh, defect there. So you can be born with a hernia where that hasn't closed off properly, or you can develop it, and it's often due to either a weakness in the muscle that then you develop a hernia from that weakness that's then put under pressure, or because of previous surgery. So you've had a surgery in that area, and for some reason the scar did not heal well, the muscles did not heal well, and you get a resultant hernia from that. So are all hernias dangerous, or are they, emer- are they emergencies? So hernias, it depends on, on what the problem is. So the big problem that we see with hernias is when they become stuck. So you have a hole in the muscle, and then some of the abdominal content, usually the bowel, gets um, protrudes through there, and sometimes it can get stuck. And if it gets stuck, it can either become in what we call incarcerated, where you can't put it back in, or it actually becomes strangulated where the blood supply to it is affected. So those types of hernias are emergencies. So if a person who's known to have a hernia develops a a situation where they can't put their hernia back in or it doesn't go back to where it usually does, or there's pain, vomiting um, associated with it, then that is an emergency and that needs to be assessed um, in hospital and likely repaired urgently. Okay, so... I don't want to oversimplifying it, but essentially hernias, you close the hole of the defect so that the contents don't come out. That's correct. But what we do is, because we know that there's a problem with that muscle, the chances of you getting another one are very high. So we use something called a mesh, which is essentially a piece of material that's been specifically developed to assist in the um, in strengthening that repair and preventing from a hernia coming back. Okay, so it like reinforces the, the hole. That's okay. it. Okay, very good. And what's the downtime, I mean, people having hernia surgery? So it depends if it's elective or if it is an emergency. So for elective hernia surgery, um, if it's a groin hernia, then usually we can it can be done as day surgery. So you come into the hospital on the day, you have the surgery, and you likely go home the same day. The same with uncomplicated abdominal wall hernias. If it's an emergency or if it's a complicated hernia, it may require a longer admission in hospital. So um, that's something you would do. That would be like a surgeon's bread and butter. They would be doing um, hernias on a weekly basis. Then you said that you're going to be doing scopes, um, gastroscopes and and colonoscopes. When should people start having these these scopes and, and why do people go for scopes? So there's a couple of reasons to go for a scope, and it very much depends on what your individual problem is. So what we see a lot of people who present for gastroscopes are people who have symptoms or people who come for screening. So people for specifically for gastroscopes, we look at the stomach and the first part of the small bowel. Those are people who often have symptoms of reflux, symptoms of peptic ulcer disease, if they've bled perhaps, internal bleeding. And there we have a look and see if there's, if there's evidence of reflux, if there's damage or inflammation of the esophagus as well as the stomach. The other thing is that we look for is cancer, and um, that is something that's picked up and often early through doing scopes because we can look at it and also biopsy those areas and send them off for testing. Um, if you have a family history of gastric cancer, those are the people who should be going for screening gastroscopes. What age do they 
start going and how often? So we don't have a formal uh, program in this country for screening for gastroscopes. Um, it's something that we see very commonly in the Middle East, uh, excuse me, in Asia. And um, there the, the programs begin quite early. The recommendation generally is that you should go 10 years before the um, – the person who in your family who had that cancer developed the cancer to start screening. Um, depending on your risk factors and if you have any genetic um, abnormalities that put you at risk, that should be discussed with your doctor. But we're looking at um, 30s to 40s um, for the screening scopes for your stomach. Okay. And for the colon? So the colon is a bit different. So... Um, Again, we do scopes for symptomatic issues as well as for screening for cancer. Um, screening guidelines generally for, um, we're looking at um, 50 years old um, with a scope every 10 years if you don't have high risk as well as if you um, have a normal scope. If, again, if you have a family history, those, scru- those um, scopes should start earlier, depending on the risk factors involved, so whether you have any genetic mutations. Some of the genetic mutations, like Lynch syndrome, you should be having scopes from your 20s, um, and those should be done every year. But that's for very high-risk people. For people who are not as high-risk, we're looking at every five years um, and doing, um, scopes again um, depending on the age of the youngest family member who was diagnosed okay great and those are again day usually day procedures this absolutely scope. day procedures um, you take some preparation at home to empty your colon come in for the procedure and then all going well you go home after the procedure it's done under sedation so that you're comfortable but it's not generally done under a anesthetic okay so what kind of breast disease, moving on, what kind of breast disease do general surgeons uh, look after? So general surgeons look after the full spectrum of breast disease. We see female patients with breast disease as well as male patients with breast disease. And we work closely with our colleagues, the plastic surgeons, to assist um, with this. So we see benign breast disease, so breast disease that's not cancerous as well as cancers. Okay. So we, we had a... A guest, uh, Dr. Aladef, on um, Liat Malik Aladef, on a few weeks ago, she was talking to us about uh, screening and the radiological side of breast cancers. So maybe we can more talk about more the surgical side. So, patient would present with a lump, they would go to for uh, either the surgeon or they, and they would be sent for investigation, a mammogram or a sonar and core biopsy. Now they come back to you with the results. Um, Let's talk about, obviously, there's uh, benign diseases, which you would possibly leave or, or cut out. Let's talk about the malignant breast masses. Okay, so... Breast cancer in general, when we look at diagnosing it, we send a patient for what we call a triple assessment. As you've alluded to, the triple assessment is a clinical exam as well as a radiological exam. So that's generally a mammogram or an ultrasound or the two of them combined, as well as a biopsy. Okay, And that's a very important part because we can only diagnose a cancer with certainty once we have a biopsy. So once you have a biopsy that shows that you have cancer, we now need to stage you. So we need to find out how advanced this cancer is and what the correct treatment is based on the cancer stage. And staging is a, involves further radiological and clinical examination. So we look for signs of lymph node involvement. We look if this cancer has spread anywhere. And we generally do CT scans to confirm um, if there's any spread of the cancer. Where's the most common uh, common place for breast cancer to spread? 
So breast cancer first spreads to lymph nodes. So okay. the most common places are the lymph nodes under your arms, the axilla, as well as the lymph nodes um, in your well above your by your collarbone. And then we see distant spread. So we see the most common sites for breast cancer to spread is the bones, the liver, the lungs, and the brain. And that's for the what we call ductal carcinoma. So that's the most common cancer subtype that we see. Those are the four areas that it most commonly spreads to. Okay, can we talk about um, a bit of treatment? So you've staged them now. So the, the mass can either be in isolated to the breast, it can be in the nodes, or it can uh, be spread through the body. So let's go through from uh, most simple to most complicated. Okay, so we usually divide breast cancers into early breast cancers um Locally advanced breast cancer, which means it's not a very early breast cancer, but it is still contained within the breast or the lymph nodes. And then metastatic, which means it's already spread. So based on that um, division, we decide on treatment. So early breast cancer means that the breast cancer is a small cancer. It's contained within the breast or the lymph nodes. And we can cure it. So cure involves surgery. And then depending on what additional treatment needs to be done. So sometimes that's chemotherapy. Sometimes we need to add radiation to that. And often, depending on the subtype of the tumor, we'll add hormone therapies or other um, novel therapies. Like I'm sure some of you have heard, and we can talk about it a little bit more, but something called Herceptin. And so if you have an early breast cancer, there's a couple of options. So we now do something called breast conserving surgery, which means that if you have an early breast cancer, we don't necessarily have to take your whole breast off in order to cure you from your um, cancer. We can do breast conserving surgery. We can remove the lump with a surrounding rim of normal tissue and maintain your remaining breast tissue by doing a reconstructive procedure, either with a plastic surgeon or a general oncoplastic surgeon. And what that does is if you have um, a breast-conserving surgery, the studies have shown that your chances of getting recurrence of the cancer coming back are the same as if you're doing a mastectomy, taking off your whole breast, as long as you have radiation. So anyone who is a candidate for breast-conserving surgery and wants to cut out just the lump with the surrounding tissue needs to have radiation to ensure that the cancer doesn't come back. But this is a new approach to breast cancer that we've been doing for the last um, little while, and it's been the studies have shown good results with that as long as there's radiation done afterwards. Okay. Can you explain to everyone what radiation is briefly? So radiation is essentially radioactive um, material that's that's a beam that is put onto the area where the cancer was. And we usually do it after the surgery, but sometimes we need to do it before. And what it does, it damages the tissues around that area. So it damages the blood vessels. And because it becomes an un happy area for cancer to grow again because cancer likes lots of blood supply and likes um, good tissues to infiltrate into, the chances of the cancer coming back are lower. We're going to take a short ad break and then we'll get back to talking breast disease with Dr. Deborah Weinberg. Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care.
welcome back to Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're talking to Dr. Devorah Weinberg, general surgeon. And we are speaking about general surgery disease. And now we're busy talking about breast disease. We've just spoken about uh, early breast cancer. What happens if the cancer is a little bit more advanced? So firstly, breast conserving surgery is not for everyone. And it is something that, sorry, we've just been talking about limiting your um, your surgery for an early breast cancer. So not everyone's a candidate for it, even if they have an early breast cancer. Um, and some people don't want to have a uh, breast conserving surgery and would rather have a total mastectomy, which means taking off the breast completely. And that's absolutely fully acceptable. If your breast cancer is more advanced... Um, then what we do, but still localized to the breast, we start with what we call neoadjuvant treatment. So treatment before the surgery. And that treatment is generally chemotherapy based. Um, so you start with the oncologist and the oncologist uses um, different regimens depending on what is required for the particular patient and what the patient's body is able to tolerate. And that shrinks the tumor. Um, so that we can then hopefully be able to operate on it. What's very important to remember with breast cancer is that in order to cure breast cancer, there has to be surgical removal of the cancer. So there is no way to cure breast cancer without doing an operation at this stage. Um, so that's for a locally advanced. The alternative is hormone therapy. So for especially for elderly people who have hormone sensitive tumors who cannot cope with the chemotherapy, we use hormone therapy to target the tumor and to try and shrink it to be able to operate. And might I just add that even with early breast cancer, sometimes the choice will be to start off with chemotherapy, but it's very much decided on an individual basis. Okay. What about the lymph nodes in the axilla, in the armpits, what do you do about those? Does the chemo take care of them or do you need to remove them? So it depends on what your stage is. So if you don't have any obvious lymph nodes that we can find, so it looks like you are lymph node negative, we do a sampling of those lymph nodes either before you start chemotherapy or at the time of operation. And that sample tells us whether or not there is cancer that has spread to those lymph nodes. If the cancer has spread to those lymph nodes, then we will usually do a clearance of those lymph nodes. Um, so what we call an auxiliary lymph node dissection. That's also done if you have positive lymph nodes, if your lymph nodes are involved and we know that there's cancer in them. It's usually done in the same sitting as your breast procedure and often through the same incision, depending on the type of operation you're having. And the lymph nodes are removed and sent off for testing as well as to help stage and see how advanced the cancer is. Okay, perfect. And let's talk about distant metastases where people have um, advanced breast cancer. So when you have metastatic breast cancer, we can no longer cure your cancer. But what we can do is prolong life and prolong life with limited um, symptoms. So it depends where your metastases are and how we treat them. So often metastatic breast cancer is treated with a combination of chemotherapy, radiation, as well as other therapies like hormone therapy and other novel treatments which we've recently developed for breast cancer, depending on the subtype of cancer that you have. So if you have metastases to organs, then we generally treat it with chemotherapy. But bone uh, 
metastases as well as brain metastases are generally treated with radiation as well as medication to try and strengthen those bones. Okay, fantastic. All right, thanks for talking and enlightening us on breast disease and uh, breast cancers. Another thing you said you were interested in is thyroid. What is the thyroid gland, first of all, and what makes you so interested in it? So the thyroid gland is a gland in the neck, and it plays a very important role in our body in um, controlling our metabolism and um, and it has it, it controls a, a large number of um, things within our body's metabolic rate. So what it does is it produces thyroid hormone, and thyroid hormone um, is uh, what we call T4 and T3, and it works on various parts of our body, and it affects the rate at which those things work. So it affects our heart rate, it affects our gut. It affects our mental state, and it um, and it 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 needs to be at the right level in order to ensure that everything functions properly. Okay, so we've got medical thyroid disease, which you would go to a physician or an endocrinologist for, and then you've got surgical thyroid disease. So, what kind of um, surgical? What kind of disease would a general surgeon or a thyroid or endocrine surgeon see? So a thyroid surgeon generally would see disease that involves growths on the thyroid. So if you go for an ultrasound and they pick up that there's a nodule or something growing on the thyroid, you would usually go and see a surgeon to decide on the management. They also deal with confirmed thyroid cancers as well as what we call goiters. So those are big growths where your thyroid enlarges significantly. Okay, so uh, people would notice maybe themselves having a lump in the neck or a lump in the thyroid or maybe on a routine screening. Are there any other uh, situations or uh, worrying things when people should um, have their thyroid checked for surgical disease or um, what other ways would that present? So... As we mentioned, there's medical disease of the thyroid. So those are people who would present with symptoms of over-functioning thyroids or under-functioning thyroids. And that's generally checked with a blood test. If you have a, a, a mass or a growth in your neck where you notice that there's swelling, if there is uh, potentially pain, um, if there's changes in the voice or in difficulty swallowing, those could be caused by the thyroid. And the best test to do to assess the thyroid is what we call an ultrasound. Um, and that looks at the thyroid and can see if there's any abnormalities and can also assess and grade those abnormalities depending on what they are. Okay, and at the same time as um, ultrasound, you're doing the ultrasound, if there's anything suspicious, you can do a biopsy, is that correct? So on the thyroid, we do an FNA, which is what we call a fine needle aspirate, and takes out cells rather than cutting out a piece. And if your thyroid function is normal, then you can put a needle into that area of the thyroid that looks suspicious or concerning and see if there's anything abnormal on those cells. Okay, so we those cells then go to the lab and the referring doctor will get um, the report back. What? Okay, let's talk about some of the diseases you would see then. Um, you said greater was a normal but very enlarged thyroid. Would you take that out? Um, for a medical problem or just a cosmetic problem or both? So goiter depends on, so it's an enlarged thyroid for a variety of reasons. Now, sometimes the goiter can have a 
component of it that's hyperactive and where you have a hyperactive thyroid because of this area that's this nodule that's hyperactive and that obviously has to be worked up properly that would be a reason sometimes to remove it or to remove at least that area or that half of the thyroid that's causing the problem Generally, otherwise, we remove it if it's causing problems, so if it's causing compression, so hoarseness, if it causes trouble swallowing, if it causes airway issues where you can't breathe properly, um, as well as if it causes cosmetic um, disturbance. So if it looks um, worrying for the patient where they don't want to have a large mass there, those are all reasons why you can remove a goiter. Okay. And uh, what other benign diseases would you remove? So we generally don't remove things for benign diseases unless, as mentioned, um, the only other time we sometimes remove things for benign diseases is when we're not sure. So you go for that fine needle aspirate and we're not sure if the cells are malignant or not. They may look a little bit abnormal, but we don't know if they're a well-differentiated cancer, which means a cancer that looks similar to the normal thyroid cells. So what we would do sometimes is what we call a diagnostic lobectomy. So you would actually remove that half of the thyroid where the abnormality is coming from and send it off to the lab to test if there's cancer there or not. Okay, so um, if it's normal, you leave the other half. If it's not normal, then you take out the other half. That's generally correct. And what setting do you do? Is it within the same week, the same month, or same uh, surgical setting? So we don't do it in the same surgical setting um, because we can't properly look at that area of the thyroid um, during the operation. So that area of the thyroid would be sent off for proper look under the microscope by the pathologist. And once we have a result to say it's cancer, then you can properly plan on how to approach the other side. In addition, if it is a cancer, then we need to also stage you again, check if there's evidence of lymph nodes that are involved, etc. Okay, what are the types of thyroid cancers? So thyroid cancers are generally um, differentiated, okay, and then which means they represent the the gland that they come from, and then you can get an undifferentiated. So the most common types that we see are papillary thyroid cancer and follicular thyroid cancer. There is a de-differentiated, quite aggressive one that's called an anaplastic thyroid cancer. And then there's a different subtype that comes from a different part of the thyroid called a medullary. Um, and that that is a, a different kettle of fish. It's, it, it represents different cells from the thyroid and it generally um, presents differently um, for a different subgroup of patients and it's treated differently. Okay, so let's talk about papillary and follicular because those are the two most common. Yes, so papillary is the most common, and as we said, they tend to uh, look similar to the thyroid gland. Um, and they, of all the types of cancers you can get, they're not very, um, the prognosis with thyroid cancer is relatively good. It very much depends on your age. So if you are young and you have thyroid cancer, a differentiated, so papillary or follicular, your prognosis is generally very good. And what we do for patients with that in the treatment of a thyroid cancer is surgery. So we generally remove the thyroid gland and then put you on hormone replacement um, to ensure that you are getting the right amount of hormone. If the 
is evidence of lymph nodes spread to the lymph nodes, then you will sometimes need to undergo what we call a um, a neck dissection, where we actually go and we remove the glands that have been um, in, uh, that the cancer has spread to, and um, and often that itself is curative. Sometimes, depending on the stage of the cancer and how aggressive the cancer is, we'll also need to do something called radioactive iodine ablation. And that's basically like the radiation we discussed in the breast. It's a similar concept where we uh, inject iodine that is radioactive to um, the patient. And if there's any thyroid tissue left, it takes up the iodine. And that radioactive iodine damages those remaining tissues. Okay, so so would all patients have uh, radioactive iodine post-removal? No, so it depends on how advanced the cancer is and if there's any um, residual thyroid tissue left behind after the thyroid has been removed. Okay, fine. And uh, is it a hard, I mean, uh, the process of the radioactive iodine, is, is it well tolerated? Yes, generally it is. It's done by the nuclear medicine department of a hospital, and it's generally done as a day procedure. You go into the hospital, you in that department, they put up a drip for you, and um, the procedure's done that way. And it's usually a once-off. Sometimes there is a role um, for, you may have more than one scan done, but generally this is done as a once-off. Okay, just to explain to our listeners, the thyroid cells uptake iodine they make their hormones through iodine so they attach a radioactive or radio labeled um radiation to element to um iodine they then put this iodine in your body and it's really clever because any thyroid cells any thyroid cells that are anywhere in your body whether arms brain liver lungs get taken up by those thyroid cancer cells, and because that iodine is radioactive and gets taken up by those cells, those cells die no matter where they are in the body. All right, we're going to take another ad break. We're talking to Dr. Devorah Weinberg. We'll be back with you now. Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday. Brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We are speaking to specialist surgeon Devorah Weinberg, and she works at Netcare Linksfield Hospital as well as Krasani Baragwanath Hospital. We are speaking about general surgical problems. We've discussed uh, breast and thyroid. We're going to go on speaking about the gallbladder now. So you hear a lot of people having gallbladder stones or their gallbladder out. What kind of gallbladder diseases do you deal with as a general surgeon? So gallstones are very common, um, and the effects of the gallstones is something that we see a lot of. So often patients will come with pain that can't be explained, and that's usually caused by biliary colic. So where the stones in the gallbladder that um, cause pain, um, although no, they're not infected and there are no other issues from them, but they cause pain. Okay, let's just go back to the gallbladder is a sac containing what? Containing enzymes, digestive enzymes made from the liver. So the gallbladder is essentially a reservoir. It's a reservoir that sits with bile in it. And bile is made by the liver and it's 
basically when you eat, it comes, it gets released from the gallbladder and it goes into your intestines to digest, to assist with the digestion specifically of fats. Okay. And so why do we get gallstones or why do people get gallstones? So there's a couple of reasons to get gallstones. Some people have um, uh, genetic diseases of their blood cells where they break down lots of blood cells, and as a result, they get gallstones. Um, but often it's uh, related to some degree of abnormality, um, supersaturated fat together with um, together with with calcification and a combination of things that lead to the formation of gallstones. Okay, so these gallstones sit inside the gallbladder, and when do they start to cause problems? So... Lots of people have gallstones, but not everyone has problems from their gallstones. So usually the gallstones cause problems when, firstly, they can cause pain, like we mentioned, biliary colic. Secondly, when they cause obstructions, so they get they block, okay? So they can either block um, the passage from the gallbladder itself and lead to infection of the gallbladder, which we call cholecystitis. So the gallstone intermittently blocks that. The gallbladder backs up with all this fluid and becomes infected. And the third thing that can happen is that those stones can fall out of the gallbladder and block the biliary tree. So the, the, those what ducts. Is the, what is the biliary tree? So the biliary tree are the ducts that are um, from the liver and include the, the cystic duct, which comes out of the gallbladder, going into what we call the common bile duct. So where all the ducts join together to form one duct, and that is where the bile travels to get into the intestine. Okay. Is that, is that painful? Or how would people know if they've got a, a blocked common bile duct? So a blocked common bile duct usually presents, it can present with pain, with some nausea and vomiting, but it often leads to what we call jaundice. Because it blocks the bile, the bile backs up and can't be released from the body and as a result you get that yellow tinge um, which is caused by the bile and that's what we call jaundice. So we call it obstructive jaundice because just like a baby gets jaundice, it can become jaundice, that's a non-obstructive type of jaundice. It's the same thing except the cause of it is now an obstructive cause because it can't flow out. Okay, so patients will maybe have abdominal pain, um, feel nausea and vomiting um, and and then um, they'll come into casualty, I guess, or get sent to their surgeon. And then what investigations do you do for them? So what we usually do is we'll start off with blood tests. So the first thing we want to know is, are you jaundiced? So are your bilirubin levels high? And the second thing we want to know is, are you infected? So this can cause a very bad infection that we call a cholangitis, where the biliary tree becomes infected, and that can make you very sick. So we want to know those two things um, to decide on the best management. Um, so we'll do your liver function tests, we'll do your, your white cell count, your CRP to see if you're infected, and also some other blood tests to see if there's any complications or any other organ dysfunction. We'll then move on to do at least an ultrasound. So what an ultrasound looks at, it looks at the liver and the bile ducts, and it can tell if there's a blockage by looking to see if the ducts are enlarged. Because if there's a blockage, then the ducts before the blockage become enlarged. Okay. Um, all right. So if the patient uh, has obstructive jaundice or they have sepsis, you let that settle down or you treat with the antibiotics, when then do you take the gallbladder out? So with cholangitis, so an infective biliary tree from a block, 
blockage with a stone, we must remove the stone. We must remove the blockage. So it depends on how sick you are. But usually what we'll do is something called an ERCP, where we go into the bile duct through the stomach and we remove the stones. And um, once those stones are removed and the bile can now flow freely, we need to take out the gallbladder to prevent further stones from falling in. And either that can be done if it's early in the same time, so once the stone's been removed. But if there's been a lot of infection or you've been really sick, then sometimes we'll wait till all that inflammation settles down. The same with like an infected gallbladder. If you present early, so with ideally within the first three days, we'll take your gallbladder out immediately. If you present later, then there's a lot of inflamed, infected tissue that makes the operation quite difficult and could potentially lead to complications. So we rather wait for six weeks for all that inflammation to settle, and then we'll take out the gallbladder. Okay, how's this operation done? I know it used to be a massive cut underneath the ribs on the right-hand side. Now it's done laparoscopically. So, yes, most operations are done laparoscopically, um, unless there's a complication or there's a specific reason why it needs to be done open. What laparoscopic surgery is, is what people often refer to as keyhole surgery. So there's small cuts made, a camera gets inserted through ports that are put through these small cuts, and then um, instruments are put in as well, and it's all done with a surgeon watching the camera on a screen, and it's a much smaller, much less invasive procedure than it used to be. Okay, and uh, once the patient's had their gallbladder removed, how long are they usually in hospital for? So if it's uncomplicated, especially if it's done electively, so there's no comp- there's no um, infection or anything at the time, then often the patient will go home the next day if everything goes well with the surgery and there's no problems, um, and if the patient settles well. So if you come into hospital, the operation goes well and simply, and you're eating nicely, you're feeling okay, you'll usually go home the next day, and it takes a couple of days for the pain to settle. Okay. I should have asked this um, question in the beginning, but who's at risk of getting gallstones, and is there anything you can do to prevent getting gallstones? So... We tend to see gallstones much more commonly in females, okay? It tends to occur in younger to uh, more heading towards the middle age. So we say 40s is the approximate, but it's, it's you know, uh, late 20s to 50s that we usually see it. Um, and, and it does seem to have some relation to obesity, Um and um, but it's much less common in males, but it can occur. From a, a risk prevention, the only thing that really can be prevented, since we can't change our age or our, um, well, I guess we can change our gender these days, but but our but genetic profiling um, is is a weight that can be modified. Um, but often we see this even with patients who are not overweight um, who have gallstones. So we're going to take another ad break and then we're going to wrap up with Dr. Deborah Weinberg. Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Dischem Medical Monday. In your last few minutes of the show, we're just going to talk about something quite common that we hear of called cellulitis. 
Um, we're talking to Dr. Deborah Weinberg. She's a specialist general surgeon at Netcare Linksfield Hospital. So what is cellulitis? I've heard of people having cellulite, but not cellulitis. Well, actually, I have heard of both, but I'm just uh, pretending I'm non-medical. So you can get cellulitis even if you don't have cellulite. Um, so cellulitis is essentially an infection of the soft tissue. Um, so we usually see it, well, we can see it anywhere on the body. Um, it's often something that we see on the, on the legs, um, sometimes on the hands, on the arms. And it's due to some infective process starting that then spreads into the soft tissues. Um, so it's different from an abscess. So it's not, there isn't a pus collection, but it is an infection, um, in the soft tissue that can often become, um, quite severe if not treated appropriately. Okay. So how do people get uh, cellulitis? So you can get cellulitis from a whole range of things. You can get an infected, uh, bite that can become a cellulitis. You can get a thorn in your foot that can develop into a cellulitis. You can get an ingrown hair, which is often what we see where people play with their ingrown hairs and try to remove it and then um, introduce infection and develop a cellulitis from that. Patients who are specifically at risk of cellulitis are people who have um, an immune system that is um, suppressed, like diabetic patients, um, especially patients who inject themselves with insulin. Those areas can also become infected. Um, and um, people who have venous disease of their legs, so um, trouble with drainage of the veins from their legs are also at risk of developing a cellulitis in those lower limbs. Okay, so um, is there anyone who's um, more predisposed or at risk of getting cellulitis? So as we mentioned, patients who yeah. have diabetes are much more at risk, as well as um, patients who um, are have a higher BMI, so obese patients might be at increased risk. And also they may not notice certain areas of their body that might become infected. Um, also, like we said, patients with um, venous disease, so chronic okay. venous insufficiency. Fine. Okay. And how do you usually treat the cellulitis? So if the cellulitis is uncomplicated, so there's no associated collections or abscesses with it, then we'll usually treat it with antibiotics. So often a real cellulitis should um, requires admission to hospital for IV antibiotics, and that's because you can get um, you can get quite uh, bad complications from it, and it can become a lot worse if it's not managed properly. So if it's in the lower limbs, we usually elevate the limbs um, and um, IV antibiotics, as well as pain management if necessary. Okay. And, I mean, I think we've all heard of someone who's, you know, squeezed a pimple or a wrong ingrown hair gone wrong or maybe some ingrown toenail um, operation gone, gone wrong and people often don't know what to do and they don't realize how serious um, it can be. I often see cellulitis of the face and the neck and the ear and they don't realize that it can complicate once it gets um, into a joint or into cartilage or getting into vital structures. So it is really important to go and uh, see your healthcare practitioner if there is a redness or swelling on any of the skin or soft tissue of part of the bodies. All right, Devorah, where can patients get hold of you? Where can they find you if they need to see a specialist surgeon or they want to see you? Besides, uh, please God, not in the emergency room. How do they see you electively? 
So I practice at Ned Killingsfield Hospital, um, and if you contact the hospital, they can put you through to my rooms, um, where we would be happy to see you. Um, and I, if you are not in a medical aid, I do work at Baragwanath Hospital, um, but uh, unfortunately that requires very uh, um, strict protocols on how to find your uh, healthcare practitioner in uh, government. Okay, perfect. So that is Dr. Deborah Weinberg, Specialist General Surgeon. Um, you can get hold of her at Netcare Linksfield Hospital on 011-647-3562. That's 011-647-3562. Thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you, Dean. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. All right. That's the end of our Discam Medical Monday. Thank you for joining us on 101.9 High FM. We'll see you next week.